then continuing on i want to talk to you the message i've titled the hedge of happiness i'm on the hedge of happiness i don't know the rest of the words but we're going to talk about this hedge of happiness now get me get kick off let's talk about a very interesting and often unspoken about tension when it comes to parenting and that is this there is nothing more terrifying as a parent than a child who knows how to hurt you now listen carefully there are, there are moments where your child uh, unwillingly, unknowingly hurts you because, because of their you know, age or lack of experience or lack of understanding. They do something that's really painful to you, but it's done in ignorance. You with me? And then there's those ones where the kid knows they found your button and they're going to tap it like a 1985 Super Nintendo Mario jump control pad until you suffer and die. For example, uh, recently... Uh, we had a baby, he's now two and a half, little Jonathan, and uh, in process for, for having this new person in the world, part of the journey to go on as, a, as the dad, as, the, as a dude, was I had to change my car to make more space for this other person about to join our family, which was a joyful thing. So I gave up the car that I had that I really liked, and I bought another car that I also really liked to create space. And so, you know, I was so proud the day I drove out of the hospital with my new son and my new car, and we're all listening together, and it's great, and I'm so happy. Until about a year later, when I was looking for him one day, and found him outside running a stone along the length of my car. And then something very strange happened. I had this moment where I thought, do I love the child more than the car because in this moment I can't really differentiate which is no, of course not but the point is man that hurt you know, all the dads say hello you know like that that hurt watching your child run a stone along the length of your car that's painful but it's done ignorance so there's there's the possibility of forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation one day maybe and uh, I'm, ju- I'm just saving all these things so one day when he walks out of his house 25 years old I'm going like hi son just what you sow, you reap. It's biblical, you know? So, so there's things that are done in ignorance, but then there's things that are done just because our child figures out how to get to us. They say things like, I hate you. They say things like, I don't love you. They say things like, you are the worst parent in the world. And the worst part about this comment is that we spend most of our parenting life, don't we parents, wondering, am I the worst parent in the world? To hear your five-year-old echo your greatest insecurity, dang right you are, you are the worst parent in the whole world, is so devastating. And either we've been on the receiving end of some of these or like statements, or 
if we're prepared to admit it, we have been on the giving end of such statements. When our kids want to hurt us, they really know how. And just because they get older and apparently smarter doesn't mean they don't know how to continue hurts. Because oftentimes the hardest blow is the one from those you love the most, right? And what happens is, if we're not careful, is as parents, sometimes we are afraid of our kids. Like we're afraid of them. We're afraid that if we don't give in to their demands, if we don't satisfy uh, their moaning and their crying, if we don't, if we don't, if we don't just be what we think they they want us to be, they need us to be, then somehow we're going to be at a point where we see, we feel or see ourselves as failure. And and what I want to tell you something that's very important, Bernard, is that is often not true. Because so much of childhood is just trying to push the boundaries and figure out where are the lines of what I can and can't do, what I can and can't say, what I can and can't have. And our job as parents isn't just to give our children everything they want, as they want, when they want. Our job as parents is to prepare these little children, people, for the adult world. And if an adult walks out there and tries to take what they want, when they want, how they want, however they want... They're going to end up in jail, which is why one of the famous sayings in my house is, either you learn the lesson now or you learn it in prison. Either way, you're going to learn the lesson. I'm better off learning it in the kitchen than in a jail cell. Bottom line is, this is why, and this is what I want to talk about today, this is why we need discipline. And today's message is all about discipline. Now, when we hear the word discipline, all sorts of thoughts run through our mind because for every reason in our culture, discipline sounds like punishment. Discipline sounds like, like something bad is happening to us. But when you think about the word discipline, what does discipline do? Discipline prepares us. Discipline trains us. Discipline equips us. The purpose of discipline isn't punishment or unnecessary pain. The purpose of discipline is training. When someone is studying in a field, we say, what discipline are you graduating from? It isn't a bad thing that they've honed and focused their skill to be an expert in that area. If someone's going to run a triathlon or perform as a high-level athlete, they have to enter into a season of discipline to prepare themselves. Yes, it may seem like in the short run, the pain is hard work and the pain is perhaps unnecessary, but in the long run, the the gain for the pain is always worth it. Here's the point. When it comes to raising children, when it comes to thinking about discipline, we shouldn't think about just in a negative sense, but also in a positive sense. That discipline isn't just the pain, but sometimes discipline can be the reward. Sometimes discipline can be this idea that if I I off-put what I want right now, for the sake of something later, the something later will be of greater value than the thing I could have now. And as parents, we need to be very careful. Why? Because when we, how do you say this sophisticatedly, when we affirm or when we ignore our kids' behaviors, good, bad, or ugly, what's happening is, is we, we are rewarding or affirming that behavior. And that which is rewarded is repeated. That which we celebrate, people emulate. What we reward as people, whether it be an employer, a manager, a mentor, what, what, we, re, what we reward, what we, what we acknowledge, what we, what we give value to, what we celebrate, people recognize, oh, this is what's required of me. And oftentimes as parents, well, two things, what we do is we fall into the trap of only ever giving out 
and never really rewarding. That's, that's not healthy either. Or we'll just ignore all the bad and keep giving what they want. And in that giving, what we're saying is every time you nag me, every time you push me, every time you threaten me, because I'm afraid of you, I'm going to give you exactly what you want. And they'll go into the world thinking they can muscle and manipulate and push their way, however way, any way they want, to get their way. And they won't. And that what we're doing in that moment is to save our short-term stress and pain is we're setting our kids up for failure. Now, one of the things I've learned in life is that oftentimes short-term pain is worth the long-term gain. Like I said, this week I celebrate my 18th wedding anniversary. I'm not going to talk about the long-term pain of weddings because it's been great. What I'm going to talk about is the short-term pain of having to work my tail off to pay for the wedding. And I can remember uh, my story I told you guys before is that when I was uh, doing my leaving cert, I was planning my wedding because the summer I did my leaving cert, I got married. So while I was sitting my leaving cert, I was planning a wedding. I was doing my exams, going to work to pay for a wedding. Fast forward o'clock two months to this week. 18 years ago, and as the story goes, I got my leaving cert results on a Tuesday, baptized on a Wednesday, and married on a Thursday. Busy week, everybody. And, uh, and, you know, as I look back at that season of how stressed it was, and how much pressure there was, and how much, you know, expectation there was on me as an 18-year-old young person to not only try pass a leaving cert after completely failing the first half of secondary school, but also to keep a job going, and then also be ready to marry someone, it was a lot of hard work. But it was short-term pain that 18 years later seems like nothing if you compare it to the happiness and love and friendship. In fact, here's a crazy thought. This year, I, don't know if my wife, I haven't said this to my wife yet. This year, I'm going to be more with her than I ever was alone. So I'm going to have lived more with my wife than I've ever lived without my wife. So I don't know where you draw the line. Like If we were to separate, I don't know, where, where do you cut? Like, you know what I'm saying? Where... Because it ain't down the middle anymore, you know what I'm saying? Because it's almost like we're, we're one thing. And a large kind of, large part of where this thing came from was my father. And I don't know if you've ever met my father. Here's a photo of old dad. And uh, yeah, my father, John Corgan. And uh, my father, as you can tell, is a criminal. No, he's not. He's, a, he's an ex-special forces soldier. I've mentioned him in some of the messages. And being an ex-Special Force soldier, growing up uh, you know, in, that kind of, in that culture and household, one of the values he taught me is that, and I remember like, you know, there'd be moments, and I played a lot of rugby, I told you before, where like, we'd be in a very difficult moment as a team, and maybe we're beaten up and bruised, and we're losing. And my dad used to go to all my games, and he'd come over and he'd say something to the effect like, the pain may last in the short term, but the glory will be forever. I like you're literally putting your arm back on and reconnecting your knee and putting your teeth back in. It's like, yeah, let's go. I mean, the pain may last for a moment, but the glory will last forever. And so in his example, in his parent, I learned a very valuable lesson that just because something hurts doesn't mean it's bad. And just because something makes us uncomfortable in the short term doesn't mean it doesn't have or the, the long-term value doesn't outweigh the short-term inconvenience. Now, what has it got to do with parenting? Well, here's the point. The aim of parenting is not to create obedient children, although oftentimes one of the benefits of applying some of these things is children become obedient. But the aim is to prepare our children to be healthy and happy adults. 
Here's a great thought for you as a parent. When you're dealing with your 2, 3, 5, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, 15-year-old, try to think like this. Even though they're acting out their age because that is their age, you're actually trying to prepare them to be an adult. Like if you perpetually treat them as a child and the person that you hand them off to next, whether it be a wife or a husband or an employer or college, they'll have to keep treating them that way because they'll think that's normal. And that will be your responsibility. But if as parents we can somehow figure out how do I, how do I grow, raise, develop, how do, how do I use disciplines to a way that I can help my child prepare for adulthood? That's why I, I say discipline is like a hedge of protection. This beautiful Bible verse says like the Lord will be like a hedge of protection. Just, just like a moat, like a wall of a castle. Discipline will be like a hedge. Now, it's a happy hedge. Okay, it's not a sad hedge. I think about happy hedge. And this is actually the fifth essential in our series. The fifth essential at the very beginning, right up front is this. That discipline is a hedge of happiness. It's not an obstacle to hem us in. It's an obstacle to prepare us to go out. And as parents, what we have to recognize is that discipline isn't something we can just delegate to our children. Discipline is actually our responsibility. And discipline is hard. One of the reasons why it's hard is because discipline requires effort, right? And, and, and I get this because I'm with you. Father of four kids, 16-year-old, 10-year-old, 9-year-old, or somewhere thereabouts, and a 2-year-old. You kind of stop counting after a while. And all I know is that when dinner time comes, they're hungry. You know what I'm saying? So, so I'm in the chaos of school runs and rugby practices, and they have their own social life. I get it. It's hard. And when you come home, it seems like you have no more effort to give. But understand... Not only does discipline require it, but discipline also communicates affection. When, when we don't cut short, when we don't quit, we don't ignore, when we don't take the, the easy route, when we choose to engage and follow through with our kids, what our kids inevitably will say is, I know my parents care for me because they follow through. And again, research has done this with a bunch of antisocial kids, and they were, they, were, they, were, they were asked, how do you feel about your parents? And the one of the main results was, well, the majority of them said, well, I know my parents didn't love me because they never disciplined me. You see, we discipline, not because we're angry, not because we want to punish, we discipline because as parents, we care. We care. And because we care, we need to discipline carefully. And that is the tension, that is the balance. So the question we're asking today is, how do we carefully discipline? And as we do every week, we're going to turn to God's word for help, for guidance, for help from heaven to help us navigate this tension. We're going to turn to the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 4 to 9. Again, all the notes are in the Bible app for you if you want to track along. So Hebrews chapter 12 and verse Four. Now, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. We do know, know there, that it was written to Hebrews, which are Jewish Christians. And it was written in response to some challenges they were facing. And it was also written to encourage them because the world they're in was changing. And what was about to happen was people were going to be persecuted, arrested, beaten up just because they were Christians. So the author is trying to prepare them for this. So in verse 4, he says, or she says, or they say, In your struggle against sin... You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. There's an encouraging word. And you've forgotten the word of encouragement that that addresses you as sons. Here it goes in verse uh, 6. My son, do not make light 
This is really key. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts on. That's very important. Why? Because in the Greek language, this, this letter written in, to not make light means like don't easily dismiss. Don't look over. Don't just like, ah, it's, it's no big deal. Like, like don't overlook the importance of discipline. And he's applying it first and foremost to these first Christians and applies to our life too. Uh, ultimately, sometimes why God allows us, he doesn't cause us to go to difficult seasons. God is not the, the author of confusion or pain or, or evil, but oftentimes because of our own choices, because of our own, our own, our own desires, our own, uh, you know, um, the consequences of those things, we end up in places where, man, we feel like we're disciplined. And God will use seasons to discipline us. And the word rebuke basically means to, to remind of truth, to remind of the right way, to, to call back to the right path. What he's saying is, when we, we as Christians, those for Jesus followers, when we find ourselves struggling, going through different, difficult seasons, when we find ourselves on the receiving end of God's discipline, when we find ourselves on the receiving end of a rebuke, we should be encouraged. You're thinking, why would I be encouraged? If someone's giving out to me, why should I be encouraged? The last time I checked, the human reaction 100% of the time to be given out to is to fight back. It's human nature. But the point he's making is that God would not bother with you if he didn't care for you. And God wouldn't intervene in your life if your life had no value. The very fact that God disciplines you as a son shows you that he loves and accepts you as one. That you're a part of his family. That he won't ignore your, 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 the choices that are destructive or selfish or sinful because he wants something better for you. Because, like I said at the beginning, you have an extraordinary purpose. This is, of course, the quote from Proverbs, verse 7. Endure hardship, then he says, as discipline. For God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Again, if you, you, can, you can produce a child as a man, that does not make you a father. You can, you can biologically create another person and on a birth cert be called father, but to be a father, you're involved, you're committed, you're consistent, you're present. Come on, somebody. You, 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 you value this person to the point that you're going to give up yourself for their benefit. So if a, if a father is truly a father, then he is someone who is interested in the direction and destination of his children. And part of the shaping, supporting, and sending process is discipline. Moreover, he says, uh, where are we? Moreover, verse 9, we have, we have all had human fathers, or we should have had human fathers, who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. Here's the context. What the author is trying to do is he's trying to encourage and equip these first followers for faith and life. What's our context as people who are trying to raise and release and encourage? And we're trying to say, we're trying to encourage and equip our children. We're trying to prepare them for faith and life, especially if you're a Jesus follower. We're trying to prepare them for how to be someone who continues to follow Jesus into adulthood and continues to, to, to be devoted to this, this call of extraordinary purpose right to the very end. And what the author says at the very beginning in verse 4 is, do not underestimate and do not un, undervalue discipline. Don't underestimate, undervalue the power, the effect, the impact 
it'll appear any second now. It's just flying over the thing. No, not there. Do not undervalue or underestimate this. Why? Because even though it may seem like, oh man, it's, I, I have no more energy, I have no more effort, I, I can't give any more, I'm tired. Like every time we cut short the process, what we're doing is, is we're taking something away from our children in preparation for their future. Now, this brings us to a very interesting tension. Because again, we're hearing discipline, we're hearing discipline, but again, discipline sounds like punishment. So what is the difference between punishment and discipline? Well, simply put, punishment is the consequence for a crime, full stop. If you break the law, you're punished. That's it. Here's the rules. Here's what happens if you don't do the rules. And here's the price you pay for breaking those rules. That is punishment. What happens to us, come on, when you're on the receiving end of punishment, when you get a speeding ticket, everybody, come on, when you get a parking ticket, when you get a parking ticket and a speed ticket on the same day, you feel bitter. Like you're ready to go to war. You're like, man, we'll, let's go storm the council building. You know what I'm saying? Call up the cousins. Here we go. We're right in the town. We're going to take back what's ours. Freedom for Ireland. It's like, come on, somebody. We were so bitter. We feel like, oh, it's such injustice. And it's so wrong. And, you know, this, that, and the other. And eventually we come around and realize we're just stupid and should have paid for our parking ticket and not sped. Whereas discipline makes us better. Punishment makes us bitter. But discipline makes us better. And we sometimes can use punishment as a lesson in discipline. But, but, but the bottom line is, if, if we are disciplined in how we drive, if we are disciplined in how we park, then we won't have to taste the bitterness of fines. That's the basic principle. Now, when it comes to biblical discipline, the purpose of biblical discipline is always not to punish, but for the restoration of relationship. Which is so crazy. Why? Because most people, maybe you, you're in that camp right now, people who don't believe or are skeptical, one of the things they believe falsely is the purpose of biblical discipline is to punish people. Again, there have been people who use the name of Christ, and even people who are in certain um, levels or, or uh, roles of leadership within organized denominations, religions, who used Christianity and weaponize it to, to control and manipulate and punish people. But just because they were misapplying the Bible doesn't mean it's biblical. When you read the book, when you see God's heart, when you read it in context, when you, when you read it for yourself, what you realize is the purpose of biblical discipline is always to restore people. God is a restorative God. God is a reconciliatory God. God is a God who redeems. God is a God who forgives. God is merciful. God is kind. God is gracious. God is generous. God is patient and God sent his one and only son to die on a cross for the whole world well so what well here's the point he knew the whole world wouldn't believe he knew the whole world wouldn't follow he knew the whole world wouldn't value what was done but he did it anyway why Jesus died for you in the chance in the hope in the possibility that maybe just maybe you would open your heart to him. And you'd experience the greatest miracle any human being experienced, the restoration of our broken hearts and our Father in heaven. The purpose of biblical discipline is always to restore relationships. And likewise for us as parents, as leaders, as managers, as coaches, as teachers, we need to discipline in a way that restores people. 
And we discipline people in a way that disciplines away from dishonesty. Because one of the biggest, most important rules in our house is don't lie. Like there's grace for everything, but don't lie. And if you lie, tell the truth. Because the problem with lying is is if you're lying, you're deceiving, you're deceiving. I don't know if what we're talking about right now is reality. It's a very dangerous thing when we find ourselves lying and deceiving. So we want discipline against dishonesty. Against, secondly, disrespect. And against, thirdly, uh, disobedience. As parents, as leaders, we want, to sh- we want to raise and prepare our kids for this idea that one day, honesty pays off in the long run. Come on, integrity pays off in the long run. It's much better to live your life never having to look over your shoulder because there's those skeletons in the closet. It's just better in life to be someone that even though you're disrespected and even though it's easy to fall into the victim narrative of our culture because everybody right now is the victim of something, but instead to go, no, I am going to show respect even when I'm disrespected. <clears throat> Not because of how they act, but because of who I am and whose I am and what I value. And ultimately, whether it's a speeding ticket or just trusting that God knows best for our lives, I'm going to obey. Not because I have to. You don't have to not speed. You don't have to not, you know, you don't have to uh, uh, was pay attention to parking. You can do it. You can spend your whole life paying tickets if you want to and losing licenses and going through a crazy cycle. But life is better. Disciplined. Life is better for our kids if they're honest, respectful, and obedient to God and obedient to the governing powers of the world. Now, the question, of course, is, well, how? I mean, practically, that's great. But how do we do this? Because we are human beings. And this is a series called Help for Raising Humans. What we're going to do is we're going to take that word human and very quickly I'm going to give you some practical tools as to how we raise our kids, how we discipline our kids, how we, how we call them into a standard of living that prepares them, doesn't just keep them quiet and obedient as children, but prepares them to be healthy and happy adults. The first one, H, stands for humility. And again, we did cover this last week, but in this instance, when I say humility, what I'm referring to is teachability. That one of the greatest values we can teach our kids in life is to be a teachable person. Don't be arrogant. Don't be someone who's full of yourself. Don't be a fathead, as we say in my family. Like, don't require carpenters to follow you around and make the archways of doors bigger to fit your fat head in them. You know what I'm saying? Just be cool, man. Just be teachable. I had this conversation this morning on the way in the car with my 16-year-old son. We we're talking about a, an interaction that happened yesterday, and I was just following through. Just something happened yesterday, and we couldn't really deal with it. I said, okay, we'll leave for now. I'll, I'll follow up with you later, okay? And follow through is so important. So this morning as we're loading the car, I said, let's, let's, let's go back and, and pick up where we left off, to which his reaction was like, oh. And I was like, well, you know, he's either here or prison, famous line. So it's like, so we talked about this idea that, you know, at the end of the day, I said, part of you as a young man becoming an adult is realizing you're not one yet. A part of wisdom at your age is realizing that you are in the tension of becoming something, an adult, but not quite yet. Therefore, as someone who is younger, as someone who is still technically a child, it's good for us to always be humble when we're talking to adults. And then I said, and that doesn't leave you because 
later on, you can be in your 40s, 50s, 60s, but still someone who's older, a father-in-law, a mentor, a pastor, someone that you hold in high regard will speak to you, and they're speaking to you for your benefit, and what will determine whether you take that good advice is if your heart is teachable. I want you, my son, to have a teachable heart, to be humble. Why? Because it's impossible for us to shape our child's lives in any way for the better if there's no teachability. Teachability is the value of listening and learning. Here's the bottom line. Parents, this is going to be challenging, so put your gum shield in. If we find our own children to be obnoxious, arrogant, self-centered little fill-in-the-blank, everyone else will too. If you don't like your child, guess what? No one else does either. And we want to like our children. We want others to like our children. So we have to use discipline to teach our kids to be teachable. It was Dr. Jordan B. Peterson who said, do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. So we want to help our kids become teachable. Number two, the U stands for understanding. Understanding. This is very interesting. Why? Knowing what something is and knowing how to use it are different things. I could pick a random person from any one of our locations, say, pick someone in dog, pick someone in nav, pick someone in dumb, say, hey, come down here, sit on this drum kit, I'm going to hand you two sticks and play a song. It's like, well, I understand there's drums, I understand there's sticks, I just don't know how to use those sticks in a way to produce something rhythmic and beautiful that makes everyone move because everyone knows that God's favorite instrument is always the drum kit. He told me himself this morning personally, so you can fact check me if you want. Just because you know something doesn't mean you understand it. We want to raise people in this world. They don't just know because here's a challenge we face as parents. Like children have never had more unfettered access to knowledge. Like, a click of, like, they, like back in the day, if your granddad told a story that was a load of nonsense, you would never know. Like in your heart you're going, this seems a bit theatrical. This seems a bit, and of course if you're raised in Ireland, everything's overstatement. Oh, there was 10 million people there. And oh, Jenny, they were like 20 feet tall. And oh my, and you're going, and as an Irish person, you learn to, you learn to hear the information, but like interpret it, you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, okay, there was a million, so probably like 10, you know what I'm saying? So, but nowadays, if you tell a story, your kid's like, no, no, it was 1994. And actually, I can see here from mom's photo gallery, actually you were in Cyprus. It's like, dang. So our kids have no lack of knowledge. What our kids are desperate for is understanding. It was Charles Ketterman, the great inventor, who said, here is a great difference between knowing a thing and understanding it. You can know a lot and not really understand anything. So what, how, do we, how, do we, how do we encourage or discipline our kids' understanding? Three things real quick. We want them to become self-aware. Like, did you realize when you said this, how that came across? Did you see that person's face as those words came out of your mouth? Have you ever thought about when you say that to your brothers, how, like if I said the thing you said to them to you, how would you feel? So we're constantly trying to coach and teach our kids to understand self-awareness, how they come across in any and every social setting. The second thing you want to teach to understand is how to be others aware. 
Because again, in our culture, the culture of jumping a bus, jumping a Lewis, jumping a car, AirPods, we're so obsessed with ourselves, our own world, our own problems, our own issues, we're not looking around. We're not, we're, not, we're, not, we're, not, we're not lifting our eyes to see the needs of others. The other day I was coming to a petrol station and I was walking out. This guy was walking across the, 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 the court, petrol court, forecourt, whatever you want to call it. And he was a good bit away, but I saw him come. I just thought, which is natural, I just, I'll hold the door. So I walked out and did the thing that we do. We just kind of put the foot in the door and stand at this for a minute and just waiting. And, and he was just... And I'm like, you know, like... Bro, help me out here. And it goes on for like, it felt like three minutes, it was like probably five seconds. And then she goes, Oh, gee, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. And the guy goes, I'm like, Man, wow. The point is, like, I was trying to help the guy, but he was so consumed in his own world, he didn't even see that someone was there trying to do something kind and gestures. We want to teach our kids not only to be aware of how they come across, but also people around them, what's happening, where are people? Simple things, like, like just old-fashioned chivalry, hold a door for goodness sake, say good morning, look some in the eye, say thank you, walk in the room, greet people, like, <laughs> oh man, I could rant so badly. Listen, I'm not going to rant. Point is, teach your kids to say hello. That's the bottom line. Third thing is this, self-aware, others aware, but then also aware of my, the effect of myself on others. Like just, we need to really promote Self-awareness. Again, I could do a whole sermon on that. Okay. So, humility, understanding three. M stands for maturity. Now, understand, maturity is not relative to age. When we first started this church 15 years ago, at that point, I've been married almost three years. We had a son, Joshua. At that point, he was nine months old. And I was 20 years old, 21 years old. And all of a sudden, here was I leading a church. Like, like the average age in the first group of people in our church was like 150 years old, or so it felt like. So here am I, like, I couldn't even grow facial hair. And all of a sudden, it's like, now I have to give people twice, sometimes three times my age, advice on life. Because I was the pastor. And people would come to me for advice. And it's like, I don't know how to handle grandchildren. I got a nine-month-old, like it was so, so bizarre and so surreal. I remember talking to one of my mentors about this, like this tension of like, what do I do? And he said, have you ever heard of a guy called Edwin Lewis Cole? And I went, no. And he said, well, you should check him out. He's a great author. And Edwin Lewis Cole was a great uh, coach, leadership guru. And he said this, maturity comes not with age, but the acceptance of responsibility. You are only young once, but immaturity can last a lifetime. And like I said, I have met plenty of people who are my age but have less maturity than my 16-year-old son. What's the bottom line? How we, how we cultivate maturity in the lives of our children is not by helping them survive into adult age because it's not a given just because they're older and mature. It's through giving them responsibility, holding and carrying and living up to the, 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 the tremendous burden or, or expectation of healthy and adequately proportioned responsibility is what makes mature. Because I was someone who left home when I was 16 and finished second school by myself because I got engaged and got married and had a kid and was passed from the church. That's a lot of responsibility at 21 years old. Either that makes you or that breaks you. Now, I wouldn't recommend you do that to your child, just saying, God had a plan, thank God. Bottom line is this, here's the life lesson. We get mature in relation and proportion to how much responsibility we have in 
our lives. How do we cultivate practically then? How do we cultivate responsibility? How do we, how do we you know, uh, increase maturity in the home? Three things. Number one, don't just give onerous tasks, but give thoughtful ownership. You know, it's very easy to go, bring out the rubbish. Take, in, fact, in fact, some of you don't even do that. Like, how are your kids ever supposed to survive if you're still doing everything for them? You're not helping them. You're hindering their maturity. Because one day, you're not going to be around. And one day, they're going to have to fend for themselves. And they'll realize, dang it, even though it was a, it was a sweet deal, when I was at home with my mother, I can't cook. I can't iron. I can't wash clothes. I've never worked a day in my life. I don't know what it is to get up when I'm suffering. I don't know what it is to go to work even when I'm sick because I value my integrity and my consistency. And I know long run, if I'm going to be someone that, that uh, demonstrates promotability, it's not, just, it's not the lowest standard always trying to get out of it, but always going above and beyond in my attitude would be work, life, marriage, faith, our family. Like We need to be careful that we're not the reason why our kids maturity is stunted so step one give your kids stuff to do but don't do it in a task oriented way this owners actually give them ownership so for example rather than saying do this you say this listen this house we all have roles yeah my role is well I pay for everything and your mother's role is she pays for everything and she cooks and she does this and she's that women always win mothers always win so no, no competition there and, uh, and your role is your role is the dishwasher this is your space. Plant your flag, son. This is your world. This is your life. This is your station. Whatever those dishes, doesn't matter whose they are, when they are, whether I mean, the neighbor could have thrown them through the window, that's yours. You put that thing, hang on, first of all, sorry, you rinse that thing first. Come on, somebody, I'm ranting. You rinse that thing first, right? And then you put it in the dishwasher. And then I know you believe in magic and group watching Disney movies, but the dishes don't fly into the breasts. Once the machine has finished the cycle, you empty the machine and put everything neatly and properly away. So when you come around, guess what? It's there for you to use. Liberations happen right now all over this church. Miracles. <laughs> Point is, don't just give onerous, boring tasks. Teach the children the why. I'm teaching you ownership and teaching responsibility. And even if they can't see it or like it, one day they will see it. And one day I'll thank you. Second thing, you can say sorry, but actions have consequences. Listen very carefully. You must follow through. If there's one thing you hear from me today is you must follow through. If your kids learn you're full of nonsense and therefore your words mean nothing, they will walk all over you like a rug or a doormat. You can say sorry and I accept your apology, but still actions create reactions because actions beget consequence. So there's no, there's no uh, bad blood, there's no, no motion, but still, here is the consequence for your action. Oh, dad, but why? Dad, it's so unfair. Dad, dad, dad. Listen, one day you'll think, man, life is great outside prison. My dad was amazing. <laughs> and if not, you'll be in prison and think, I should listen to my father. Either way, it's a win-win thing. Number three, if we're going to uh, uh, raise material, we have to invest then in trust. So again, we have to prepare our kids 
Radical, there's a whole thing here I'm going to skip because time's up, and next week we'll get more into that. Okay, so H for humility, U for understanding, M for maturity, and then A for attitude. A for attitude. Attitude is defined as a settled way of thinking or feeling about something. And again, just because something thinks and feels something does not mean it's right. It just means it's settled. And sometimes part of our job as parents is to be demolition experts, to be bad attitude, stinking thinking, demolition experts. We blow that sucker up. That's nonsense. That's, that's not good enough. That's selfish. That's childish. We, we just come in and we throw it into you and we blow the whole thing up. But we don't, we don't blow it up just to leave a crater. We blow it up to build something better. Why? Listen carefully. Because our words shape our world. Our words shape our world. It was business thinker Zig Ziglar who said, your attitude, not your aptitude, will determine your altitude. One more time. Your attitude, not your aptitude, will determine your altitude. And so as parents, we do two things. We need to model with our words how we expect them to work with theirs. And number two, we also need to mold them with our words. Listen carefully, parent. The attitudes our kids display, ready for this, are a direct reflection from your attitude. Like we said in Ireland, they didn't lick it off a rock. You know what I'm saying? It comes from somewhere. And oftentimes there's certain components that come from you know, social media and friends in the street and school, but the core, the core attitude, the core root of their attitude comes from you. So on the one hand, and again we said in part one, we're not, our kids don't need perfect parents. What they need is humble parents. You know, I, I know I did this, but even I'm humble enough to recognize this is not good. I'm apologizing to you and I'm calling you to a higher standard. Why? Because I want better for you than what I had for me. I'm not dismissing it or ignoring it or, 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 or ignoring you. I, I'm saying that's, that's my bad. That's my foul, my bad, because I want better for you. But also, secondly, how we talk to our kids is so important. And again, this could be a whole sermon. Times I can't go as much in as I want to. But just be conscious that when it comes to your child's lifetime, even if you're a parent that's not really involved in your kid's life, maybe your kids are grown up, listen carefully, still the most shaping, most influential, most devastating, or most encouraging voice in your children's life will be yours. And they might ignore you, they may scoff you, laugh at you, walk out mid-conversation, say all sorts of mean things to you, but when you're dead and buried, still ringing in their head, will be the words of their father and mother. Here's my question. What will those words say? When you can no longer speak, what will your words speak for you? Our words shape our world. Be intentional. Yes, Discipline and consequences, but also be intentional with love and affirmation. One of the things I always tell my kids is, we're having this consequence, our discipline, but it never affects how I feel about you. I always love you. And I'll always accept you. No matter what you do, or how bad it is, or where, no matter what happens in his life, understand that nothing you can do can ever stop me from loving you. Why? Because before you were born, I already decided I love you. Before I knew your name, I decided I love you. Before you did, you did any action that would be worthy of my love, I'd already given it to you. And because I've given it to you, you can't lose it and you can't give it back. So no matter what happens in life, always know that you have a father in this world who's imperfect but loves you to the end. And we have to be intentional as parents that we leave a legacy of words that our kids are affirmed, loved, 
and, and accepted no matter what. Okay, the last one is N, navigation. Humility, uh, understanding, maturity, attitude, and navigation. It's not enough to direct our kids and say, hey, there's the way, we must show them how. We must show them how to make better decisions and live with fewer regrets. Why? Because direction, not intention, will determine their destination. The direction they take, not their best wishes, not their plans, not their intentions, will determine their destination. And many of us, our regrets came from making poor choices, not choosing the right thing at the right time, that's in the right path, and now we live with regret. If we want our kids to live with, without regrets or as little regrets or less regrets than us, then we must remind them, we must not just point the way, but show them how to follow the way. And this predominantly applies to three things. Number one, boundaries, healthy boundaries. And again, it's a whole sermon. It applies to friends. As a parent, you have the right to be involved in your children's friendships. And understand this, the second most powerful voice in the life of your child, especially as teenagers, is the group of people they surround themselves with. And just because you don't want to be cool or be mean or whatever, or don't have other parents on the street talk to you, does not mean you should give up the second space of influence in your child's life to a bunch of delinquent, immature, self-centered, poorly parented children. It's your children's future you're giving away because just to save face on the street, you are the parent of that child. Who your kids surround themselves with will shape who they become. And too many times in the past, I've watched, especially Christian parents, just go, oh, I want to be normal, be cool. So, yeah, he goes out and he does this and that and the other, and, and she goes, and all of a sudden it's like, how did my child end up so far away? Well, I'll tell you why. Because you didn't pay attention to their friendships. So, again, it's a whole sermon series. So, boundaries, friendships, and of course, thirdly, technology. And I wish I had more time to get into that because there's loads of practical stuff on technology. Bottom line is, every detour is a direction. And every direction leads to a destination. Andy Stanley said, as parents, we're called to lead. And the goal of leadership is not to eradicate uncertainty, but rather to teach people to navigate. Bottom line is this. Because we love, so we lead. Because we love, so we lead. As parents, we have this incredible responsibility and it requires effort, it requires energy, and it requires, once again, giving up of me for the sake of the we. But bottom line is, we discipline. Because we care. We love our kids. We want what's best for our kids. And yes, we can sometimes get better in how we discipline. I guess we can all improve and grow, and, and you know, so many other things about like, how to manage anger. So much could have done. But the bottom line is, just because we care, but we also need to discipline carefully. And as parents, our kids don't need perfection. They just need authenticity. We can model, we can't model perfection, but we can model authenticity. And as parents, we have this incredible privilege of molding our kids for the future. Of, yes, loving and affirming and supporting, but also sometimes calling them back, sometimes clipping their wings, sometimes putting a hedge around, not to keep them there, not to bubble wrap them, but to prepare them for life and for the real world. Discipline is a hedge of protection. Discipline is a hedge of happiness. And I know already from just preparing for this message that maybe in the coming months we should do a whole series on just this topic, 
just how can we get better at this communication? So many questions around navigating technology as a parent, social influences, the world. I mean, there's so many things happening. But if I can just bring you back to this key thought, you're not alone in this. Because what did the author of Hebrews say? That when life sometimes feels difficult, when we feel like, man, we're being disciplined, let's be encouraged. Because God would not intervene if God did not care. And we have, we have a heavenly Father. And wherever there's imperfection in us, the good news as parents is we can point to the perfection of Him. And wherever we fall and fail, the good news is we can always choose to get back up again with God's help and show our kids that success is not never failing or falling down. Success is getting back up with God's help and being more determined with love to shape the world into a better place. I want to encourage you, parent, that God is on your side. And there's lots of important things we do in business and education and church in the world. But the most important thing to God's heart is when we are called, equipped, when we're privileged with the responsibility of shaping, supporting, and sending people into the world. You're not alone. You don't have to be perfect. And God wants to help you.